Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane. And today I have a former writer for The Tonight Show and comedian who actually speaks on suicide prevention and knows what the barrel of his gun tastes like. Please welcome Frank King into the fast lane with me today. <laughs> welcome, Frank. So I'm, this is not a laughing matter, but you are a comedian who speaks on suicide prevention. So how did we get how did we get here? Yes. How did you get from A to B? That's good. <laughs> you know, uh, Sarah, that is is always, almost always the elephant in the room when I speak. And so I try to I try to address it early. I, I've, I've taught comedy comedians because I've been a comedian full time since 85. And I tell them, look, if there's something odd, uh, you know, you're 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 big, you're small, you're thin, you're tall, whatever it is. You need to address it right away because the audience, part of their brain is trying to figure out, you know. So what I tell people is I think a comedian's a good choice, and here's why. Uh, the world's first comedian was a court jester. It was his or her job to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. And I believe as a comedian, I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often locked in its grip with humor. I believe where there's humor, there is hope, where there's laughter, there is life, and that nobody dies laughing. And uh, depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt, several years later, died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four. I and do you remember that? Yes. Uh, and therein lies a tale. Uh, I didn't remember it until, until decades later when a cousin of mine helped fully <laughs> turn the key and reopen that part of my brain oh. uh well because you know what happened was in my mom's generation they didn't talk much about mental illness out loud even though it was rampant in the family and so after i screamed for days after we found my great aunt my mother said we need to make up a story we need a legend a myth so that if and she was hoping i wouldn't remember which i didn't but she said to the rest of the family, look, if he ever asks, then this is what we're going to tell him. And it was a very benign story compared to the actual event. I mean, the event when we found my great aunt what is horror movie gruesome. I, I, uh, it's in my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh or Death. As a matter of fact, it's, it's the reason I got the TEDx talk. Because when you audition for TEDx, you can either give an overview or give him a slice of the talk and I gave him a slice involving my mother and I discovering my great aunt and I mean they were apoplectic so the um but I I think it was I was in my early 50s and my cousin owns a restaurant in North Carolina and I was back there speaking and I was going to have dinner at the family restaurant and somehow I got talking about my great aunt and I I said I told I repeated the myth about the sort of benign version and he goes, what? My fanny, she. And it all came rushing back. Really? I was there again. I was right there again. And so that was um, the, the good news is that that was part of the reason I always wanted to do comedy, but make a difference, you know, make a living and a difference. And the way you do that is you become not a funny speaker, but a speaker who's funny and you teach people something. Uh, meeting planners after the last recession said, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you that kind of money just to be funny. You need to teach our audience something. And I'm like, what do I got to teach them? <laughs> so I read a book by Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. 
Don't went into it thinking I got nothing. Halfway through, I remembered the story that my cousin told me. I looked at my family history, more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And in 2010, after a chapter seven bankruptcy, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. So I had a personal, what they call lived experience. I thought, you know, if I study suicide prevention, take some classes, I can keynote on suicide prevention because I've got lived experience. My family has what they call lived experience. And then I can teach them signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, not to say, what to do, not to do, and find resources. So that's what I, when I talk, when I speak, the heart of the curriculum is spotting signs of depression, thoughts of suicide, because eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. Nine out of 10 people who are suicidal give hints in the last week leading up to the attempt, which tells me that the vast majority of people in this situation want somebody to notice and interrupt. And so I teach them how to spot and what to say, how to ask. So that's how I got from comedy to, um, to do to, to being the mental health comedian speaking on. And the stories I tell are not jokes. It's funny. For example, I said, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Well, a friend of mine is in the audience. He never heard me say that out loud. He comes up afterwards and said this, and I quote, Hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. That's where the humor is. Now, people have busted me. How can you make fun of people who are suicidal and mentally ill? Well, in comedy, there's a rule. You can make fun of any group to which you belong. And, and I have two mental illnesses. I have major depressive disorder, which... Uh, means that uh, better known as depression, but with major depressive disorder, it lasts anywhere from three days to three weeks, depending on who you are and you know, how, your, how your brain works. Yeah. And it recurs like a flat spot on a wheel. It's generally not situational. It's just a cycle. I've been most depressed and suicidal at some of the best times in my life. I always wondered, worried, what's gonna happen if I get this depressed and suicidal and it's the worst time in my life. And of course I found out when we filed bankruptcy. So, so, and I have something called chronic suicidal ideation, which is far more rare. It means for me and people in my tribe that the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, when my car broke down a couple of years ago, I had three thoughts, unbidden. One, get a fix, two, buy a new one, three, I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. Now the upside of that silver lining is Every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience, sometimes more, who has that condition. And they have no idea it has a name. They just think they're some kind of freak because of the way their brain works and completely alone. I did a college, young woman came up after the college presentation and said, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but God tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, well, you know the story about the car? Get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I had no idea it had a name. Oh I thought it was just some kind of freak and completely alone. And when you said that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life, I am not alone and I wept. So that's, that's how I went from, you know, telling my first joke in fourth grade when everybody laughed, including the teacher who was hysterical uh, to the 12th grade talent show, did stand up one. And then my mom made me go to college. So four years of college at UNC Chapel Hill. And then as soon as I got out, 
we, my first wife and I moved to San Diego. There's a comedy store there, a branch of the world famous one up on Sunset in LA. And I did my first open mic night and inside my head, halfway through of my five minutes, I heard this, you're home. And that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career and my first marriage. But that's another story. <laughs> so then if you knew you wanted to do comedy at a young age, at a young age, did you have any depression or did you have any suicidal thoughts at a young age or when did that start? No, actually, um, I, even though my dad died when he was 40 and I was eight. By a- accidentally? Uh, heart attack. Okay. Yeah, he had a, they believe, because it was 1964, couldn't really tell. Um, he had a heart attack and they, they, um, they, when I turned 25, I had my first echo cardiogram and what I've been told was a murmur all my life. Turns out was a bad heart valve. The heart valve is supposed to have three leaflets like this. And he had, they believe, and I had a bicuspid aortic valve, meaning I'm missing a leaf, a little leaflet, which means there's turbulence and backflow and it wears out faster. They believe that's what he had because it runs in families and often from father to son. Um, so that's why he died. He died, at, like I said, at age 40 of a heart attack. But my, my childhood, my mom, is wor- there are things worse than having one great parent. And, and she had good friends. Uh, she gave state board tests, exams to nurses. Hmm. And so when my dad died, the nurses do, did what nurses do. They rallied around. I've got a speech, a keynote called Everything I Need to Know I Learned from a Nurse. And and at one point in there, when I'm talking about how every Thanksgiving, Christmas, popcorn or football games, you know, a concert, there was my mom and at least one nurse friend. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Now, give me a couple of shifts of good nurses. We can get it done. <laughs> By this point in my keynote, I'm crying. The nurses are crying because hmm. um, that's just. You know, they just, that's just the way they operate. So, but I, had, I, I was happy all through high school. I almost stayed an extra year. Back then you could actually stay an extra year in high school if you wanted to. I needed some really um, intensive work on my math skills because I had a bad algebra teacher. And if you have a bad algebra teacher in eighth grade, they're, you know, it's just ugly from that point on. Yep. So I was going to take trigonometry again. I was going to take some more Spanish. I wish I'd taken typing now since we all do this all day long. Mm-hmm. But my first wife said, you'll be behind. You get to college, you find out, you know, there's a four-year plan, a five-year plan, a six-year plan, a seven-year plan. So anyway. Um, so then your I mom didn't, didn't have any depression either. Uh, well, I believe she did. I believe, I don't know if it was situational because my dad passed away so early or whether she had the family gene. Sure. Um, she killed herself slowly with alcohol and cigarettes. She wasn't an alcoholic in the beginning. She was, you know, that generation where you came home and had a, you know, a beverage, an adult beverage in the afternoon after five o'clock. And that, you know, you do that too many times too long. Um, And I think it it eventually she became an alcoholic and then she smoked three packs of Terrytons a day. Um, Mom, why are you smoking the Terrytons? Because they got the charcoal filters. Oh, for the health (laughs) conscious smoker. Oh yeah, everybody in my family smokes except my sister and me. And when we go back to the family reunion, all those people get together and make my sister and me stand outside. You, uh, you and your sister don't smoke? <laughs> no, which is amazing because we grew up in North Carolina where everybody smoked. Mm. Cigarettes were cheap, but I, I'm just, yeah, I just, I tried it. My sister tried it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> fortunately we didn't, but I'm amazed that neither one of us have 
lung cancer because my mom in the house, you know, all closed up. Yeah. Three packs of the car, three packs. I mean, lighting one off, you know, chain smoking, lighting one off the other. Yeah. I mean, she, she loved her cigarettes. Wow. Um, well, as people say, I've heard it said that when you pull in a little cigarette, what your, what your brain is saying is this is just for me. This is just for me because she has so much other responsibility Two children in the sixties as a single mom. That was very rare back then. She's the only single mom in the neighborhood. And so uh, I think, you know, it's difficult. And that's the way she, that's how she medicated. Mm -hmm. uh, in the evening, she have a toddy and a cigarette. And, and she never got remarried? No, because she was a lesbian. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Really? Um, yes, both my mom and dad were gay. I'm working on a TEDx talk called um, Gay in My DNA. <laughs> so because both, both parents were gay. And there is some evidence that, that, when they were married to each other? Yeah. Um, it was, they met in high school in the late 30s, 1930s. They were crazy about one another, both gay, both wanted desperately to have a family. And so, and they, they enjoyed each other's company, so they got married and they tried to adopt. But back then, there weren't a lot of infants to adopt. So they decided to try it the old fashioned way against nature, you know, in, the, in their case. And, and my mom actually got pregnant carried it to term, it didn't survive, got pregnant again, carried it to term, didn't survive. Oh no. And somewhere found the courage to try again. And I was born and again, my sister was born. And so when people ask me why I don't kill myself, one of the reasons is because my mother worked so hard to get me here, was so brave that I've got to be at least as brave and work at least as hard to stick around and not cut it short. Hmm, so give me goosebumps. I, yeah, well, yeah. And usually by this point, the keto and I'm crying because you know, it's, oh, it's yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so she only saw women, but I didn't realize that until a year to left. She was gone. Um, my first wife, I'm sorry, my second wife, who's still my wife, 33 years. Um, she was in town when my mom was winding down, you know, at the hospital in the nursing home with cancer. And so years later, 89, 99, probably 20 years later, she said to me, did you notice that everybody who came to see your mom at the hospital when she was dying was gay? I go, yeah, those are her friends. You know, when you're a kid, you just accept things as they are. Sure. And so my wife goes, now she's leading me down the primrose path at this point. She knows where she's headed. She just wants me to stumble on it myself. She goes, well, did she have any special friends? Anybody, you know, who maybe came over all the time? Well, yeah, Miss Cheek used to come over every Wednesday and, and, and spend the night. And she goes, and where did she spend the night? <laughs> and I went, it all fell into place. So she said, my wife said to me, look, your mom still has Audrey, a friend of hers. She's the only one left alive of that core group so when you're back in north carolina when you guys go to lunch because i know you will just ask her you know and so i i went to lunch with audrey and i said audrey look everybody else is dead nobody really cares but me and if you don't want to answer this question don't feel like you have to mm -hmm. i said was my mom gay now audrey at this point is 84 she goes duh <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, she was, it wasn't like a flaming romance. It was just comfort. You know, they were just comfortable with one another and your mom had lost her, you know, the love of her life, essentially, her husband, even though she, you know, they weren't, uh, they were both dead. And so it makes, makes my parents, well, and my dad, as I look back, worked in a clothing store, was a window dresser. You know, he fixed, he set the windows up in the store, did all the pen and ink drawings of all the fashions, never, never kept a suit. If there's two button suits went out and three button suits came in, he gave the two button suits to Goodwill and bought three button suits, you know, jackets. I mean, he did everything but give me a crate of Judy Garland records. Good, you know. <laughs> but he was, he was, uh, so anyway, that's, that's, that's. Wow. Yeah, that's, I'm glad that she found happiness though. I'm glad that she, you know, I'm glad that she didn't spend the rest of her life alone. Oh, would be sad. And, and of her, there were three siblings, my aunt, my uncle, and my mom. And my aunt was married miserably for over 65 years. Oh. And my uncle, same thing. And the only couple that was actually happy was the gay couple and the husband dies at 40. It just, it seemed, you know, uh, unfair because they were so happy with one. I mean, it wasn't like Shangri-La, you know, I mean, they argued just like couples do, but nothing like the horrible, horrible marriages that her siblings had. So let's talk about when you, you noticed the depression. Oh, uh, I married my first, my first wife was my high school and college sweetheart. And we dated all through high school and then went to different colleges, opposite sides of the country, but we're able to maintain the long distance relationship. And you know, when, you, when you've been dating since high school and you get through college and you get out, it's either pretty much get married or go your separate ways. Yeah. So I've got a joke in my act. Anybody else here besides me married by, I got engaged by ultimatum. My, my first wife said to me, look, we're too old to keep dating. We were 22. Um, I'm not going to live you live with you, which would have been my choice, Sarah, uh, at least with an option to buy. Uh, <laughs> either marry me or I'm gone. And that's how I got engaged. Okay. Terribly romantic. And as I'm walking down the aisle, I know it's a mistake. My intuition is screaming, get out. And, but in my head, when I said to the minister, I do, in my head, I heard, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I know now you don't try marriage. You try grape nuts for a couple of weeks. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I wasted her time. I wasted my time. She's a was she thinking whole... the same thing, though? Like, when you got married, was she thinking the same thing you were or not? I have a feeling. Well, we, we shortly after we got married, at um, a training, um, I went to Seattle to do some training with the insurance company I was working for. She had relatives there, her grandparents were there. So she came up with me and she spent time with her grandparents. And then part of the training, they brought the spouse in. You kind of give them an idea what the business is like, what's going to happen, you know, the time commitment. And they had a session on goal setting for the couple. And so they had us each write down our top 10 goals for the relationship. And we, and then trade papers. And not one of the goals on those papers was the same. What? Yeah, I, we should have just said, you know what? <laughs> so we need to call this a day. Uh, yeah, and so, but we, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be a comedian. She wanted an insurance man for a husband because that's what her father did, her grandfather did. Very sort of young and upwardly mobile, you know, you get married, then both go to work. And then she gets pregnant, has a child, maybe another, and then, you know, not working. 
uh, and working out, not working outside the home. And then when the kids go to first grade, then you go back to work part time. That was kind of her, you know, she mapped it out. And nothing in there, no mention there, comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Which I understand. Although, so anyway, I'm married. My third TEDx, fourth TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Because when I was 23 or four years old, um, I realized I was depressed and suicidal. And I thought if I don't do something, change something, because I was married and miserable even though she's a wonderful woman. I was selling insurance and miserable, great business, just not for me. And I was not going to the comedy store to do open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged and miserable. And I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to kill myself. And my second thought was, well, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works great. And I think it will, but if it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. Oh my God. Yep, and I thought I was the only one ever thought that way, as most people with mental illness do. I'm sure I'm the only one ever thought. Well, I bumped into half a dozen people since then, entrepreneurs, entertainers who had the same basic thought process, living a the life they felt like was somebody else's. They had a dream they weren't pursuing, and they realized I'm depressed and suicidal. If I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself. I've got a female comedian, comedian friend. We had a conversation. She goes, "Do you want to know the real reason I started comedy?" Sure. She goes, I'm working in Washington, D.C. I got a great job with an association, but I hate it with a passion. My only joy, two nights a week, open mic night. And she goes, I know in my head that I should be a comedian. That's what I was born to do. But, you know, I, and then she said I was depressed and suicidal. And I said, let me finish this for you. And you thought, what the heck? You know, if I'm going to kill myself, if I stay put, why not? Quit the job, try comedy. If it works great, if it doesn't, I can still kill myself. She goes, how do you know that? Know that? I lived it. So it turns out there are other people who had the same basic thought process. So that's when I became aware of my depression and thoughts of suicide. Because up, up to high, into high school, I was a little lovesick during college and I may have been depressed, but she was, I thought it was because she was so far away and we're you know, going to different colleges and yeah. maybe it won't work out. And, yep. Anyway, yeah, so suicide is, is um, and the chronic suicidal ideation, ironically, helps keep me alive because, because suicide is not so much about ending your life, killing yourself. It's more about ending the pain most times. And because I know I can kill myself at any moment, I've crossed that barrier, I can stand a great deal of pain knowing that I can bring it to an end anytime I want to. So ironically... My suicidality helps keep me alive. And, and, and it has other <laughs> benefits. Uh, we had a wildfire earlier this year, late last year in September. And it came within a mile and a quarter of our house. And the, they'd evacuated the neighborhood. But I was downtown when the evacuation happened. And I get an alert on my phone, neighborhood being evacuated called level three, get out. So, but I've got 11 rescue cats in that house, in the path of a wildfire. So there's no way. We're like the Marines. We never leave animals behind. I drove back into a wildfire to load the cats, not knowing if we'd ever, if we'd get out. Uh, going in, didn't know if we are going to get out. And, and I've got a whole new respect for the term herding cats. I pushed one in the carrier to jump out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, don't you guys understand? <laughs> it's getting darker outside, darker outside, darker. And I made a little video leaving the neighborhood. Said goodbye to everybody. My wife, my sister. Uh, my friends. Oh my gosh. Thinking, yeah, thinking I'm, I, you know, well, and, and sent it 
before I knew, or as I, as I realized I was going to get out, but I had, you know, sent so that if, if, if the worst happened, they would at least know, you know, what happened? Why, why did you drive back into a Well, and so a friend of mine said, well, you could have been killed. I've been trying to do that to myself for 40 years. You know, what, what, what do I have to lose? Wow. Um, and if you're going to go out, by God, you might as well go out doing something, you know, really heroic, like he went back in to save the Kikis. <laughs> Very heroic. <laughs> so, so suicide, is, it's, uh, it's one of my, I, I believe my comic ability and uh, creativity, imagination, just the flip side of my depression, thoughts of suicide. It's all the same brain. Because mm-hmm. I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the information the way my brain does as a comedian. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, it is like heckler lines. People heckle me. And I come back with something. Woman's leaving the comedy club. She's been drunk. She's been giving me a hard time all night. They find threw her out. She's on her way out. She turns back to me loudly in front of the entire audience and screams, F you! And I said, not even for practice. And got a standing ovation. And people ask me, well, how'd you think that up? I didn't think it up. It just came out of my mouth. I have no idea where it came from. When you heard it, I heard it. But I believe that's all part and parcel of that. And my, that's my third TEDx talk, Mental with Benefits. Because I keep, kept meeting people who are mentally ill, who also had some amazing ability. You know, singer, entertainer, writer, painter, musician. You know, they had this, it was like, it's like disability, but also this, and 30 Fortune 500 companies, according to 60 Minutes last fall, are hiring people on the spectrum for their one specific ability from the autism spectrum and paying them handsomely for that ability. So I think the tide is turning where people are realizing, you know, these -hmm. things aren't necessarily just a disability. There may be some ability that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So when you, do you think that having the can you say it the chronic how do you say it suicidal suicidal ideation i okay do you think that having that makes you live life a little more to the fullest because you went back to rescue cats not knowing if you were going to live or not like do you think maybe you live a little more because you're not afraid of dying (laughs) you're on the edge yeah like i said you could have been killed i've been trying to do it 40 years let's see what happens yeah because really a lot of people wouldn't do that because they would be scared, but yet you do what you believe in and you do what you think you need to do and and you're not scared. So you've removed that fear. So are you living a little better? I think so. Because the next thing he said to me was you could have burned a lot. And I said, no, that's not the way I'm going. If if the fire had been licking my toes, I have other ways to go. I'm choosing my way. I'm not going to burn a lot. That's no way to die. Sure. Sure. Yeah, we have handguns in the house. And um, I, yeah, if the house is burning down around me and I'm going to die in a fire, I'm... Wasn't going to happen. Did no, the fire kill him? No, apparently not. Uh, well, then <laughs> again, I'm because when... I'm willing to do that, I can go into a fire and if it gets too close, right. well, I did my best. Interesting. So then when... I really like what you said about how your mom fought so hard to have children. And so you need to be here. I, I really like that you say that. And that shows a lot of respect that you have for your mom as well. But, But what my question is, is that when people, I am not an expert in this at all. So I am truly asking for my knowledge. When a person does commit suicide and they aren't leaving a note, what are, 
are they kind of saying like you should have seen this coming or they don't want to explain it or what what do you think is the the reasoning behind that because people are very upset like if someone takes their life and they don't leave a note people are I oh I've heard this many times why didn't they leave a note like they're so confused by it what do you think is behind that well I think the again you know they didn't want to chances are they didn't want to die they just wanted to end the pain mm-hmm. and you also hear people say why did why didn't they what there was never a hint he never said anything i never noticed anything um you know i would have done anything for him if you just told me yeah. he was suffering um a i didn't tell anybody until i was 56 that i was depressed and suicidal you went from 23 to 56 without telling anyone yeah uh, and and only the only reason I told them was I did my first TEDx talk and I came out on stage as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew. When my wife got ready to play the video on YouTube, when it posted, I said, look, stop, don't hit play yet. I need to tell you six or seven things about me you don't know. I just don't want you to learn. I'm staring at the, you know, the computer watching YouTube. Wow. We oftentimes mentally ill people keep it to themselves. You know, don't want to be a burden. You know, if I, even if I tell you, there's not much you can do about it. So that's why in my keynotes, I teach, well, then how do you spot the signs of depression, thoughts yep. of suicide? Because there are certain behaviors you can, if, once I've taught you that, it's hard, to, it's hard not to see it in someone. I did a thing for dentists uh, a year or two ago. And, and one of the signs that somebody may be considering suicide is they, they're getting their affairs in order and they're giving away their prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. So this dentist, there are two, there are two, the two dentists in the story, but they are both at the same presentation. So dentist number one is downsized. He and his wife, the kids are out, married on their own. So, you know, they're going to get rid of the two story, four bedroom, whatever, and buy a little ranch, you know? And so something's got to go. There's no way all this stuff can end up in the, you know, in the new house. So he's posting on Facebook. He's giving away stuff. I mean, good stuff. So he gets a call from the other dentist. There's number two. Are you okay? Oh. Why would you want to know if I'm okay? Well, you're giving yourself away. And I know how much you love those golf clubs. Oh. And Frank said, <laughs> one of them, oh man, that's so sweet. You called. No, we're just downsizing. Do you want the clubs? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, the, as to why they don't leave a note, I, I do think it's a little unfair. Um, mm-hmm. but, because here's what, even, even if people leave a note, people still have unanswered questions like, why didn't they tell me? Why didn't I notice? Yeah. You know, it was something. And then they have what they call survivor's guilt. I should have been nicer to them. I planned to have a beer with them that night, but the kids need to get picked up from softball. So there's a, there's a, a the, there's even a thing called suicide postvention where you get together with everybody who knew the person who died by suicide, family members, friends, um, fellow employees, and you decode the suicide because mm. everybody's probably got a piece or two of the puzzle but not nobody has the entire puzzle so each person talks about you know their relationship with the person and and if they noticed something along the way which mm-hmm. seemed benign at the time but now in retrospect so when you put the entire puzzle together and you back up it, it's almost always oh look at that right there i mean you can see it coming it's just but nobody had all the pieces Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, and by the way, the, um, they're trying to change the vernacular in the mental health business from committed suicide 
to die by suicide or completed a suicide because the word commit has some pretty heavy duty baggage. You commit a crime, you commit a sin, you commit adultery, you know, you don't commit cancer or diabetes. Sure. Uh, so they, they like, they prefer it as died by suicide or completed a suicide. Okay. So. so what are, what are some signs that a person, obviously I'm, I'm going to go down this road and not that this is a great route, but I have three young boys and young suicides are definitely on the rise. That's so what correct. is something as a parent I can do, or I need to look for to make sure that I'm not missing something? Okay, well, let's start with the signs of depression. Because depression is the number one cause of, I mean, it's tied number one cause to suicide. And the depressive state of bipolar disorder, you know, it's manic, hypomanic, depressive, is even more dangerous. I think because the distance between manic and depressive is so great. You know, the fall is. Um, have trouble eating or eat too much. Have trouble sleeping or sleep too much. Have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, you know, to go to school or to go to work, but rallies in the afternoon, you know, it's like a different person in the afternoon. Um, the, here's, where you, here's where you don't say to somebody who's depressed, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Here's what you say to someone, probably an adult who you believe is depressed. I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And then you have to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. Are you? And if you can't ask that question, find somebody who can ask it just that way. Mm -hmm. Now, there's an old urban legend. You should never mention the suicide word in front of somebody who's depressed. And I love the reasoning because it might give them the idea. Suicide. What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Trust me, it's crossed my mind. Now, let's say they're not forthcoming about their thoughts. Let's say a young person and they're just, you know, you ask them that question. Are you having thoughts of suicide? And they say no, but you suspect that they might. How would you, what sort of behaviors are you looking for? Well, we talked about one, getting your affairs in order and giving away prized possessions because you want to make sure they go to the people you want them to go to. Giving, giving away a pet, a treasured pet animal is top of that pyramid. Uh, they're collecting the means to die by suicide, whether it's medication or buying a firearm. They talk about death and dying. You catch them, you look at their internet history and they've been Googling death and dying or death and dying appears in their artwork, their music as a theme, their writing. I've got a friend whose son died by suicide and he had, he had terrible heroin habit and she thought he was simply a junkie. She didn't realize he was self-medicating for mental illness. And he was a singer and a songwriter. And he carried a notebook with him all the time in which he wrote his lyrics and music. And he never let it out of his sight. He would take it to the bathroom with him when he was home. So his mother couldn't see it. She realized later. So when she got the notebook and she opens it up and she's going through the lyrics, it's like putting that puzzle together. It's all right there. So um, it appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. Here's a really dangerous one. They've been depressed for seems like ever. And then all of a sudden, happy beyond measure. No apparent reason. And you're happy because thank God they're happy. They may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method. And they know the pain is coming to an end. So they're happy. So with young people, what you're looking for is a pattern. 
do you catch them Googling death and dying? Do they talk, you know, to you about death and dying? Um, again, giving away prized possessions. What happened to your Xbox? I gave it to Bobby. What? Like the guy in the golf clubs. Are you okay? Yeah, why you ask? Well, because Frank said, um, so that's, yeah. And, and there's a young man that was chronicled on, on my newsfeed not long ago where he couldn't convince his parents that he was truly depressed and suicidal because nobody wants their kid to be anything but perfect. And they, you know, they, they tried to write it off as puberty and teenage angst. And finally, he, what he started doing was when he'd been to bed at night, left his laptop open. And on the screen, he had Googled how to kill yourself. And this is, I'm sorry, can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah, I apologize. I think I somehow activated all, this is a new, it's a Mac and I, it's my first Mac and some way to activate phone calls coming in on your Mac and I don't I want to stop and I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn my phone off. I don't know if that's going to do the trick, but hey, you know. Yeah, and, and what, what the problem with it, Sarah, is um, I'm sure there's a button there somewhere at the bottom that, you know, like, don't answer or can I call you back? And I have no idea. Okay. It's my, it's my new refurbished Mac. Um, anyway, I can't remember where, where we was. Uh, oh, um, yeah, suicide. And the, yeah, he would leave the computer open. And on the screen, it said in the search box, how to kill yourself question mark and finally they walked by the computer noticed what was on the screen and and took him seriously and he's still alive today because of it so sometimes you know it's difficult for parents to wrap their mind around and they uh i did a it's called the american association of suicidology and i spoke did a ted style talk and they had some a woman talking about teenage you know young person suicide and they put up a picture of this goth individual, you know, the black and the black and the tattoos. And the black. And you go, it's pretty easy to, to see this kid killing himself. And then they, next picture is, you know, the football quarterback with the short hair and the good, you know, the uh, all-American good looks and the scholarship. Um, oftentimes, the young people who are suicidal are not the, the, the goth loser, you know, nerd, whatever. They're the high achieving athletes, immensely popular, just got a scholarship to go play football somewhere and gone. So, you know, it's, it's, I think we ought to teach in school, you know, in, in addition to physical education, um, mental, you know, um, mental health class. Because young people as young as middle school are reporting self-reported anxiety and depression. Yeah. And so, you know, we need to be able to spot that and then, you know, take action. Um, and then that's going to have to be medication, uh, a mental health evaluation, some therapy, you know, resolve some issues. Mm -hmm. um, if medication's indicated, you know, then the thing about medication is uh, if it doesn't work, there's, an, there's a DNA cheek swab test, like Ancestry. They take your DNA and they match it to the, let's say, antidepressant that works best with your metabolism. Wow. So it, you, you get a lot less go on, you got to taper off, go on, didn't work, taper off, go on. So a lot less lab rat, more, you know, it's not perfect, but it does help to dial in 
Mm-hmm. It's a couple hundred bucks generally. Most insurances, not all, pay for it. But uh, that's cool. And no. were you Medicaid, like you had been married for, or you went from 23 to 56, and then you told your wife, you know, before she watched it on YouTube. But were you yeah. medicated at that time? Uh, no, uh, except that in 95, when things got really bad, um, I'm sorry, 85. No, 95. Married to my second wife. And, and, and that's when I realized that it wasn't situational. That everything was going well. Mortgages paid off, money in the bank, bookings. And I got wretchedly depressed and suicidal. And I thought I got to take something. So there's an over-the-counter supplement called SAME, S-A-M-E. You can buy it at Costco. 400 milligrams in the morning on an empty stomach every day. And it was just enough to take the edge off. Apparently, it's very good double-blind study on mild depression. So it was just enough to take the edge off every day. Then I turned 60. My wife said, look, ask your doctor. See if you can get a little something, something. So I said to him, you know, I'd like to try an antidepressant. He said, why? I said, because I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And he couldn't grab his prescription pad fast enough. And I, I take something called Wellbutrin, a small to 150 milligrams, and it worked. Uh, my wife noticed in two weeks. At three-week mark, I had this thought first time since I guess I, before I got married, was I like my life. It just came up unbidden. I mean, I got a good life anyway, but that thought, that had, that had never bubbled up for like decades. And I thought, second thought was, why didn't I take this stuff earlier? Mm-hmm. So I still take the same thing. And you know, it, it doesn't make me giddy, but it takes the edge off, shortens my, I usually have a three day cycle, can shorten it a bit. And it's spread out the time between the flat spot on the wheel. Don't have it as often as with the antidepressant. Why do you think that people are usually, so if people don't have any type of mental illness, why do you think people shy away from it so much? They, you know, they make it so awkward when they don't know anything about mental illness. Well, I think some people think it's contagious. <laughs> oh. And a mask is not going to protect you. Uh, no, I think either A, they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or B they have no idea what to say. And so, you know what, it's sort of where alcoholism was, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years ago. There's a reason alcoholics anonymous was anonymous because back then people thought it was a character flaw or a moral failure. Yeah. And I think a lot of people still feel like, because you can't see it, that mental illness is a, is a character flaw, a weakness. And kind of like alcoholism, before everybody realized drug and alcohol, drug addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse disorder was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, I, I've had people say to me, just choose joy. Unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid, I think we're out of luck. Mm-hmm. Don't you think if I could have done that, I'd done it 40 years ago? Absolutely. So it's a lack of knowledge. And so when I speak to audiences, part of my what I talk about is for the people in the audience who are mentally ill, like they might have, you know, what I have. The other part of the talk is for the neurotypical to help them understand what the people with mental illness are going through. It's not a choice. It's not choosing joy. It's, you know, it's not, don't worry, be happy. Um, that, that, so educate the neurotypicals. Because here's the simile that I use. Uh, there's a Greek character named Sisyphus. He gave fire to man. And his punishment was the other gods got together and they made him roll a rock up a hill every day. 
And if you got the rock over the top of the hill, he could retire. That was the deal. But he'd get right near the top of the hill and the rock roll back down every day. Having a mental illness is like that. Every morning you wake up, there's a rock and a hill. Some days the rock is small, the hill's not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But every day there's a rock and a hill, regardless. And that's what having mental illness is like. And I tell my eyes, I says, look, I'm here to make sure that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you can still move that rock. That is, a, that is a noble thing to do for everything that you've been through. And I have no idea what, what that feels like. And I have had depression myself and someone, I live in a very small town and someone had asked one of my family members, is Sarah still crazy? And <laughs> right? Like who even says that? And I think now I might remember who said it. I mean, it's so insignificant to me at the time, but mine was more, I cried all the time. I could not be with anyone, even my family members. All I did was cry. Like I had this horrible anxiety and depression. And there was definitely a few times where I thought if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that would be okay because I don't know, you know, and I haven't thought that way. And I'm sure 2001 was the last time I, I thought that, but it is, like it can affect anyone. And I think people need to realize that. And I'm so glad that you said it. There, there's not a stereotypical person for this. This can absolutely happen to anyone. You see the commercials. Do you think that this is accurate? You see the commercials of the person who gets out of bed and they're frowning and sad and they grab their face and they put the smiley face on and they go out. Is that what it's more like? Very much so. Um, great actors. There's a reason I have a Screen Actors Guild card is because I... I acted for 56 years you did yeah uh, and and it's it's i mean to my detriment it's important i think for you to come out to trusted people you know love and trust because yeah. you're going to need a pit crew when the wheels fall off you know it's like a nascar race you'll hire the pit crew <laughs> as you're rolling into the pit yeah. you pretty much have them lined up <clears throat> so they could be there you know they know what you're going through they're not going to judge you um they're not going to do what they call the mental health business should all over you. You should do this and you should do that. They're there for you. That's, that's, we wrote, we've written three books on men's mental health in a series of four books. We're working on book number four. It's 12 stories of 12 guys, each book, like chicken soup for the soul. Only it wraps around, wrapped around men's struggles. And we made it look like an automobile owner's man. So guys would pick it up. And it's full of automobile metaphors like that. Like, don't you wish your man, the man in your life, any man in your life had a check engine light, like a mental check engine light. Light goes off, he goes to the mental mechanic. Guy puts him up on the rack and he goes, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, again, I, I, I call myself crazy, but again, I can do that because right. what I'm trying to do is take that word back as, you know, uh, gay people, some, decided we're taking back the word queer we're tired of it being a pejorative so we're gonna we're gonna reclaim that word and use it about ourselves and make it so it's not a pejorative so it doesn't have the impact on us that it did you mm -hmm. know previously so i you know i call myself crazy all the time um, but again i am crazy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what i expected i don't know if i expected to laugh as much during this conversation which i should have because i'm talking to a comedian but i definitely want people who are listening to know that frank nor i find this to be a joke at all but no. frank relates to people really well on this subject 
being lighthearted. And you, and I really think, Frank, just speaking with you, that you probably reach way more people than someone who comes out and is super serious. And, you know, because people are going to shut that off. They're going to stop listening to someone who is just telling you what to do and telling you what to look for in such a monotone voice. You are really bringing it to people in a much easier to digest way. Well, and, and here's, and this is to your previous point. People have an idea in their mind, I think, what mental illness looks and sounds like. And so if you, if you tune into a podcast and there's a guy on there, you know, he's a comedian, he's obviously high functioning, um, got a good life, but lives with these, hopefully it changes their perception of what it looks and sounds like to be mentally ill. And so they, you know, it change, if you change perception, you could change prejudices and then eventually behavior. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm, that's part of what I, why I do what I do is I want people to see me on stage and think, cause it's like, it's like cognitive dissonance. You can't hold what you thought mental illness looked and sounded like in your head when you're watching me who, you know, with mental illness, you, you can't hold those two thoughts simultaneously. So I'm, that's, that's another reason I speak is to, is to educate neurotypical people on what mental illness, you know, that what you believe mental illness looks and sounds like may not be a fact. Mm-hmm. And what can we do? What can the average Joe who does not struggle with mental illness, how can we help? Well, people ask me that. I've got a friend who's depressed. What do I do? Well, first of all, don't do anything. Just simply listen. I give out my phone number, every podcast and every keynote, 858-405-5653. And you can put it in the show notes, 858-405-5653. And I say to people, look, if you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or whatever, or text the text line, text help to 741-741. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell number. Because I'm not going to judge. You don't have to explain anything. I'm just going to co-sign whatever BS you're waiting for. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to do. You just want to be the shoulder to cry on or just, just listen, actively listen, uh, non-judgmentally and offer your help. Let me help you get some help with this. I love that. So let's end, end on a positive note. I think that was a positive note. I think that's amazing that you gave out your number. And yes, I will put it in the show notes. But what what is one of your favorite things about being a comedian or one of your favorite times from, from being a comedian? Uh, writing jokes for Jay Leno for 20 years. Uh, from the time he was just the permanent guest host until he took over the show, till the show ended for him. I wrote jokes. Um, he hired a bunch of road, road comics, we would call ourselves, back in the day. And most of them he let go. Uh, you know, they were under contract. Let, let the contract players go when he took over the Tonight Show. But myself and some other folks, you know, he kept us on. Mm-hmm. And I, I would have a joke or two in the monologue every week, which meant that there's an in-house staff who are writing as well. But that meant my joke on that topic was better than anything they came out with, which is that, and, and on his very first show when he took over for Johnny, I had two jokes on his very first show. That was probably the- you know, Wow. Yep. That's very and he's true. a nice guy. When I had my first heart surgery, when I got out of ICU and picked up my message from my message machine, hey, it's Jay Leno. Somebody told him I was having heart surgery, one of the other writers. Heard you had heart surgery. Good thing you didn't have it in LA. They take it out and leave it out. <laughs> So yeah, that was probably, you know, the uh, peak of my comedy writing career. 
That's awesome. Well, you here we are talking to a celebrity because you wrote for the Tonight Show. You have several TEDx talks, and that's six. That's that's a big deal. That <laughs> All is on a, mental health. That's a big deal. I know people are amazed. Do what? A comedian? Six TEDx talks? But you know, I'm passionate about the topic. It's it's. Uh, I'm getting ready to do my actually getting ready to do my sixth one, uh, June seventh, I think. Wow, and you're an author? Yeah, um, two co-authors and I have written the, it's called Guts, Guts, Grit, and the Grind. It's, me, it's a men's mental health manual, basically. Lots of exercises and resources and stories of guys. Because guys told us, if you're going to write a book about men's mental health to help us, we want real guys, real stories, and how they're really coping. Because guys tend to take advice from guys. Absolutely. That's what they told us. I love it. I love how passionate you are about helping people. And I'm very grateful that you are here, be able to tell everyone your story, because I think you are encouraging people daily to do better, live better, be better. And that is my goal. And you are living that to a T. Well, and one last thing, because you mentioned this and I'll let it go by. You said you had times when you thought if I didn't wake up in the morning, that would be okay. And that's called passive suicidality. You know, people say, look, I'd never kill myself, but if I didn't wake up and you hear kids or people who are traumatized as children often say, I would go to, go to bed at night praying I wouldn't wake up. I wouldn't kill myself, but if I didn't wake up, that would be fine. So there may be somebody listening who's had that experience. It, passive. That's what it is. Passive that's- suicidality. Yep. You're suicidal. You're just not going to actively end your life. But, you know, if you get hit by a bus, great. Wow. I've learned some new terms today. Yeah. Well, hopefully your listeners, maybe somebody out there, Sarah has chronic suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. They didn't know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak. And because of our conversation, they realized for the first time in their life that they are in fact not alone. I mean, that to me is could be life changing. They gave me goosebumps when you just said it. And that is the goal. That is the goal to make sure that people know that there is help there are people out there that will just listen, not yeah. tell you to take fish oil and just, <laughs> or do yoga or whatever it is. Yeah, that's right. Have you meditated? Yeah. I've thought about killing you a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure like that cannot be an easy thing. That can't be an easy when, when everyone's trying to fix your problems when, uh, but you know, I just, I'm, I am still in awe that you dealt with this for 33 years before anyone knew about it. I mean, that is talk about, talk about a silent killer, really. Yep. And I understand, you know, people, when they suggest things like fish oil, they mean well, they're not mean. They do. They, they do mean well, but they don't want us to say, you know, and and they just assume it can be, you know, can be fixed. Yep. All right. What's your, are you in Canada? North Dakota. North, North Dakota, close enough. Um, <laughs> South Saskatchewan. Uh, the have you been in the Medora musical? I love Medora. I was there. I did two weeks uh, one summer, uh, one summer in uh, North Dakota. I did you know because they do the roping and the singing and the yes. They have a variety act and they rotate every two weeks. And I did the Medora musical for two weeks. Really? When yeah. I want to know because I want to know if I was there because we go there every year. Yeah, it's been 20 years ago, I'm guessing. It's been probably late 1900s, early 2000s. Hmm. Okay. Did you have a joke? Because I will never forget this joke. I was at one once where the comedian said something about when you go home um, and you write a letter to someone, 
You don't have to put postage on it. You can just put, uh, you can put their name, you know, or put their name in the return area and put your name in, in the, uh, to the addressee. Was that you who said that? No, it was not me. God, that, if that would have been you, that would have blown my mind because I remember I was little and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I could send a letter without paying for postage. That's correct. Well, and I'll tell you how long ago it was, is I had to drive to Dickinson to get internet service and it was in a bar. Oh my. In the middle of the day, I'm in a dark bar only because they, I, you know, I buy a beer and let it sit and then do the internet because there was no internet in, um, in Medora at the time. Really? So yeah. did you like Medora? It was a lovely little town. When I saw the 2,500-seat amphitheater uh, in a town that has 90 permanent residents, I thought there's no way. But people come in by bus after bus after. It's amazing. Seven days a week. It is. Well, I love it. I love that you've been there. So, yes. If you ever get back there, please, if you ever end up there, please let me know. because I I I will let you know. I've always hoped I could go back because I had a lot of fun. And a lot lot of young kids, you know, uh, doing the roping and the singing and the dancing and all that stuff. It is definitely fun. What do you have to say for our, our closing? Any any very last thoughts that you have for people? Yes, you can make a difference. You can save a life. Uh, and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right here, and that's start a conversation with somebody who's struggling. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.